Well, Revelation 14, that's where we are this morning. We will continue plowing until we get there. The whole theme of the book of Revelation is that the king is coming, and if you need a Bible, the ushers are moving through the aisles now. You can wave them down, and they'll give you one. But we are in this book that is Jesus moving in on that which is rightfully his. And uh, we are at this point in chapter 14 where John is going to actually see that triumph in the end. You know, when we finish the imagery that we have in chapters 12 and 13, we are left with an unholy trinity that is triumphant over these tribulation believers. But there is one more player on the final world stage to account for, a group that hasn't been mentioned yet. What happens to the 144,000 that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 7? Well, chapter 14 answers this question as the imagery and symbolism fades and John's attention is brought back to the reality of what's going on. The enemy does not triumph over everyone. God, of course, we know has already led a portion of Israel to safety in the wilderness, and now we'll see that he will keep his promise to the 144,000. Not one of them will be lost. And their safety proves to us that no matter what the enemy can do, Jesus will win in the end. So chapter 14, we begin in verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of great thunder, of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Here we see that John looks. Chapter 13 ended with a, a way for those who lived during the tribulation period to identify the Antichrist. But when John looks away from those signs of chapter 12 and 13, we leave the symbolism behind. He sees something new. He says, lo, which means check this out, something new. We're in, we're in a new phase. Something grabs his attention. And so what grabbed his attention? Well, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion. As horrifying as the dragon and the two beasts were in the last two chapters, this sight is beautiful to John. He says, I saw not a lamb, but literally in the original language, the lamb, Jesus, standing or literally having taken his stand. It's in the perfect tense, a completed action with results that are ongoing into the future. And thus, we are briefly transported here to the end of the great tribulation where we see that Christ is victorious, not antichrist. That's how it looked like it was going when you read chapters 12 and 13, right? Looks like he's going to be victorious, but he is not victorious. Jesus is victorious. Now, the question, of course, is how does that happen when things look so bad at the end of chapter 13? Well, we will find that out as we move through the rest of the book of Revelation. But God wants us, wants John and all of anyone who would listen to this letter, to see the what before we learn the how. 
The idea here is, is chapter 13 ominous? Yes, yes it is. But everything in chapter 13 pales compared to how things end, as we see at the beginning of chapter 14. Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, they may rage against any who oppose them, but Jesus is the one who wins. Here we see him having taken his stand, it's a completed action, on the Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is the name for the hills that Jerusalem sits on, in particular the city of David part of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is mentioned as Mount Zion 152 times in the Old Testament. In fact, we'll see in the book of Revelation here that John refers to Jerusalem by lots of different names in Revelation. In fact, the only time John actually uses the word Jerusalem in the book of Revelation is to refer to the New Jerusalem. He always refers to physical Jerusalem by other names in the book of Revelation. So there's no reason for us to think that John is referring to heaven here just because he uses the phrase Mount Zion. That is not a reference to heaven. In fact, in verse 2, we see that a sound comes from out of heaven toward John and toward the Lamb who is in Jerusalem. That phrase, from heaven, is used 12 times in Revelation, and every single time it refers to something coming from heaven to the earth. So what we're seeing here is Jesus in Jerusalem, and he's not alone. It mentions that with him are 144,000 having his Father's name written in their foreheads. We met the 144,000 back in Revelation chapter 7. And the question, of course, is, well, how do they survive the Antichrist's persecution? tells us here. Because they have their father's, his father's name written in their foreheads. Now, the word written here uh, is also in the perfect tense, which means this is something that happened in the past. Revelation chapter 7, verse 4, and I heard the number of them that were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. So, they were sealed at the beginning, and they're protected to the end. Now, it's interesting because we know that the Antichrist's mark, his brand, is kind of a, an imitation, a very bad imitation of God's seal, and they are different words. You know, while the word for seal is also used for authentication and ownership, just like the mark of the beast, the, his brand, it is different from the word mark in that it also speaks of security and safety. The Antichrist, he may promise security and safety, but he does not care about those that he brands with his mark. The Father does. He cares very much about those that he places his seal on. For his seal is stamped, the Bible says, with his name, which is faithful and true. And God was faithful and true to these guys, wasn't he? We don't read that Jesus took his stand here at the end in Jerusalem victorious with 112,799. We lost a few on the way. No. He says, and I saw the 144,000 there too. Every single one. Not a single one was lost in these seven years. Now, while John sees this triumphant end to the great tribulation, a sound from out of heaven catches his attention. And I heard, voice two, it says King James, a voice, but the word there just means any type of sound. I heard a sound or a noise from heaven, and it was like the sound or the noise of many waters. It was like the sound or the noise of a great thunder. And I heard the sound or the noise of harpers harping with their harps. Apparently, there's a lot of harpers in heaven. 
We, we have lots of Harpers here. Now, you might be saying, but doesn't Jesus' voice sound like a voice of many waters? Yes, it does. Uh, while Jesus' voice is said to sound like many waters in Revelation 1.15, when we see this metaphor of many waters, a sound of many waters, along with the other metaphor of the sound of thunder, we know that's used to describe the sound of multitudes in heaven. In Re- Revelation 19.6, this is just one example. Revelation 19.6, and I heard, as it were, the sound of a great multitude, and it was as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. So this is referring to a multitude in heaven that is, as we see in a moment, singing. The more John you know, listens to the sound, he realizes it's a song accompanied with uh, lyres. These are uh, not lyres like lyres, but the old uh, instrument that's similar to a guitar but looks like a harp. Um, and so these guys, they, whoever they are, they, they have these lyres and they're singing. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures, the cherubim and the elders. That's the, you know, the representative of the church. And no man could learn that song except the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. So we are not the harpers here. We're not the instrumentalists or the singers here, um, you know, because it says only the 144,000 can learn it. This song is sung in our presence, you know, the elders, the representatives of the church, but this is not us singing it. That means that this must be the multitudes in heaven of angels that are singing this song and playing these instruments. So I'm not saying you may not get a harp in heaven. I'm just saying that in this instance, it's not us. Now, it mentions here that no man could learn that song. The word there to learn, it means to come to realize something after reflecting on information that you've been given. In other words, it's not so much that no one can under, else can understand the lyrics. It's not like you're going to be in heaven going, you know, Bob, what are they saying? I don't know. I don't understand it, you know? You know and it's not like you couldn't pick up the tune. It's not like all of a sudden you lose your rhythm for a bit and go, not for me, not my song, you know? It's not that. The idea is that this song will only have meaning for this group. Therefore, they're the ones who will learn to sing it. For it says they were the ones which were redeemed from the earth. The phrase there literally says whose freedom was purchased from the earth or from out of the earth. Remember, in the book of Revelation, the word for earth or the phrase earth dwellers, those who inhabit the earth, very much refers to those who rebel against God during this time. The 144,000 are rescued from that rebellion, purchased from the slave box, and set apart for God's use during this awful time. And so, because of that seal, because of that separation, while judgment and persecution reigns around them, they are not touched by it. Now, that is a unique experience that I can't claim to have. I'm not untouched by the things going on around me. I'm not promised to be untouched by persecution. This is a unique experience that only these believers could understand, and therefore, they're the only ones who can sing this song. In fact, there has never been anyone who will be quite like this group of people. For it mentions here in verse 4 their uniqueness, these are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. 
When it mentions here that these were not defiled with women, it doesn't mean that women defile people. The idea here of defiling refers to ceremonially unclean. You know, there were things that you could do in the Old Testament that would make you unable to go to the tabernacle and worship. You would either have to do a ritual or a rite, or sometimes, in this case, just take a bath and wait 24 hours. Coming into contact with someone else's bodily fluids made you ceremonially unclean. And if you don't understand how that could happen in marriage, then I would say ask mom and dad. You were excluded from worship at that point until you took a bath and waited 24 hours. So if you were married, this was kind of, you know, a regular part of your life, you know, Uh, which works out good for you ladies because it means the guy had to take a bath every once in a while, you know. You want to go to church? Got to take a bath, honey, you know. So, you know, it was date night last night. Get to take a bath, you know. Can't go to church tonight. I'm being silly now, but probably ridiculous, but... The idea here is that the 144,000 aren't going to live a regular life. They're not going to get married. They won't have any personal pursuits, it tells us. They're going to follow Jesus wherever he leads them from the day of their sealing all the way to the end when he triumphs. Now, God doesn't call us to that. In fact, God doesn't call the majority of Christians to this kind of life. Jesus talked about how some are, are called to this, this, this life. It's, it's a gift from God, their calling. Jesus, uh, Paul mentioned that he had that gift, that he was called to that um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But what's interesting to me is that during the tribulation period, Jesus actually warns that there will be great difficulties if you have a family during the, those seven years. In, in Matthew 24, 19, Uh, Jesus says, you know, during at this point, the middle part of the great tribulation, when the Antichrist is requiring everyone to take the mark of the beast and to worship this abomination of desolation, it says in 2419 of Matthew, and woe to them that are pregnant and to them that are nursing in those days. He says that would be really hard. Guys, there will be no good way, no good place to raise a child or grow a marriage or enjoy having a family during these seven years of wrath and wickedness and destruction. And those who attempt to try to have a family during this time will experience great pain and great loss. And so these guys, they'll be called not to live the, maybe the life that you and I might live, but they're just going to follow Jesus wherever they go. They will be the first fruits from this time to do so, which means that many others will follow their lead even though they're not part of the 144,000. They will be instrumental in others leaving behind a normal life to follow Jesus during these very difficult seven years. Now, in verse 5, we read that the 144,000 will be the only voices that are speaking truth during this period. It says, and in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. The word guile means to deceive by trickery or falsehood. (laughs) Is there any better way to describe our current culture than one that has guile? (laughs) They're without guile. Our culture has plenty of guile. It's so hard to know what's really going on because everything is spin. Everyone has an agenda. Well, the Bible teaches that as we get closer and closer to the end, truthful words will become extinct. By the time the Antichrist steps onto the scene, everything will be deception. The 144,000 will be the only truth speakers, a faithful lighthouse in a sea of darkness. Now, 
The Bible doesn't come out and say this, but this leads me to believe that these guys will be evangelists during the Great Tribulation. I can't prove that, but that's my opinion. I believe they will be the ones who will be spreading the truth to the rest of the world so that the world is not left without a true testimony of God. Now, it also mentions here that why their mouth was not filled with trickery or falsehood. And it's funny because it has nothing to do with the words they say. It has to do with their character. It says, for they are without fault before the throne of God. The word there means to be morally blameless. It's the idea that no one could accuse you of anything. They aren't sinless, but their message won't be tainted by arrogance, unbiblical forms of communication, moral failure, or character flaws. And that is why their message will be the truth. In a world where character gets easily pushed to the side as irrelevant, Today, it doesn't seem to matter how you stand for the truth. Taking the right side is the only thing that matters. Well, apparently God doesn't define truth the way our culture currently does. Apparently, character does matter. Apparently, these qualities do matter to God, which means that bad character isn't the truth, even if you're speaking the truth, because bad character is just another form of deception, even if someone picks the right side. Now, because deception will be the norm during the Great Tribulation, God won't just use the 144,000 to spread the truth. (laughs) We're going to see here in verse 6 that God's going to, beginning in verse 6, that God's going to send angels so that no person has any excuses for rejecting him to follow the Antichrist. Look at verse 6. John says, and I saw, so after being given a glimpse of the end, John is now snapped back, he's brought back to the midpoint of the tribulation where we've been discussing the chronology here, with the Antichrist at the height of his power and he's requiring everyone to take his brand. John says, and I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, the highest point where everyone can see this angel, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. No one is left out. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. This angel, it says he will possess the everlasting gospel, the eternal good news. What's the eternal good news? (laughs) Well, it's something better than this present world has to offer us. Look at Galatians chapter 1 verses 3 through 5 with me. Galatians 1, verses 3 through 5. Paul the Apostle, just before he talks about his disappointment that the Galatians had embraced another gospel, which he says is actually no gospel, it's not good news at all. Before then, he testifies of the true gospel, the everlasting gospel, and it's this. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us, rescue us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the gospel. The gospel is the idea that God, the Godhead decided in eternity past that the Son would become a man and die for our sins so that we could be rescued from this present loss, the present lost condition of this world. The gospel is God's plan to save humanity. And the gospel is the exact opposite of the mystery of iniquity. 
The mystery of iniquity teaches you don't need a Savior. You don't, we didn't need God to become a man to rescue us. We can save ourselves. We can fix this mess ourselves. Well, we can't fix this world ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. We'll, in fact, only destroy ourselves in the process of trying. And the good news is that there's a better way. And this angel calls every single human being on earth to reject the Antichrist lie, the bad news, and to worship the Lord instead. In verse 7 of Revelation 14, his message to the world is this, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, not a single person is left out. He says with a loud voice in the zenith, the very middle of heaven, so all can hear, fear God, reverence God. Don't reverence this man. Don't reverence the power behind him. Reverence God. Worship God. And give glory to him. The very end of Paul's presentation of the gospel to the Galatians, he says, To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He is the one who is worthy of the glory, not the Antichrist, nothing that we could achieve here. Give God the high status that he deserves. And then the angel gives two reasons why we should fear God, reverence him, and to give him glory. Number one, for the hour of his judgment is come. The time of God's judgment is here. It has arrived. In Acts chapter 17, verses 29 through 31, you can read it. It mentions there when Paul's preaching on the Areopagus to to a crowd of unbelievers. And he says this. He said, listen. He said, we were created by God. He said, it is not right. It is not worthy. It's not something that we should be doing to worship things of gold and of silver and of other metals or of wood or of stone. And he said, you know, in the time that God of ignorance that people did that, he said God winked at that. He should have judged it immediately, but he didn't. But now, now that Jesus has come, he calls all men everywhere to repent, for he has appointed a time when he will judge the world in righteousness by him who he has chosen. He has appointed to do so, the one whom he raised from the dead. Paul said there's a time coming. God has a set time where he's going to judge the world in righteousness. And that time, this angel says, is here. It's here. You are out of time. If you do not come to the Lord now, if you do not repent now, you never will. That's the first reason they need to give God glory. There is no more chance after this. The second reason is because he's the one who made you. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. He made you. He made everything. You did not make yourself. We did not make this world. So what makes us think we can save ourselves or we can save it? We didn't make it. I didn't make me. Only the Lord can get us out of this mess. (laughs) And so this angel comes out and says, worship the Lord. He's our creator He's our Savior. He's the only one who can rescue us. And judgment's coming. Now, I realize that there are those who read Matthew 24, 14, where Jesus says, and this gospel must be preached in all the, all the earth, and then the end shall come. And they'll say, that's why we've got to tell everybody about Jesus, because you know, he can't come back until everybody hears. That's not what that means. Matthew chapter 24 is a chronological order of all of the judgments in the Great Tribulation. Read through it. It matches up perfectly. If you start in Revelation 6 and just go through the rest of the book of Revelation, it is an exact chronological order. And right there in the midway point of the Tribulation, what comes right after, he mentions that this gospel must be preached to all the world and then the end shall come. Right after that comes the abomination of desolation, mark of the beast. 
They're right at the same time. So this angel is the fulfillment. This is Jesus predicted this happening, and this is, this is what's, what's going to be the fulfillment of that. It's not us going out into all the world and preaching it. It's when this angel preaches and all the world will hear. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't go into all the world. We should go into all the world because Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. But I shouldn't have to have a motivation. Well, if I don't do this, Jesus won't come back. No, trust me. He has a time when he's coming back, and it's not influenced by you and me. There's false theology out there. It's like, well, we got to take over all the nations and, you know, and then Jesus can come back. It's false teaching. Don't buy into that. Preach the gospel because they love the person next to you that's going to hell. And that Jesus died for them and he loves them. The angel would be the one, though, that fulfills this prediction of Jesus in Matthew 24, 14. Now, that's not the only announcement that's made here. After the good news is preached, there is an angel that makes a worldwide pronouncement of judgment on the Antichrist kingdom. Look at verse 8 in Revelation 14. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Literally, literally it reads in, in the language here, it fell, it fell, Babylon, the great city. In other words, its destruction is announced as a fact, even though it isn't destroyed until the end of the tribulation when the seventh vial is poured out. So why announce it here? Why announce it now? Because its destruction is certain, and therefore no one should put their trust in it. It's not going to last. Now, this is the first mention of the city of Babylon in the book of Revelation, so the question, of course, is why is Babylon back on the world scene after being a ruins for multiple millennia, you know? Well, we'll discuss Babylon in the end times when we get to Revelation 17 and 18, so you have to come back for that. But for now, we just need to know that it is the seat of the Antichrist power. It's the seat of, of the one world religion. It's the seat of the one world government, the seat of the one world economy that will be in place. It is where that power base is. And God is going to completely destroy it. Why? It tells us, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, wrath is an unfortunate translation there. It's not that the word can't mean wrath. It's just it's not limited to the emotion of wrath or the, the overflowing uh, passion of wrath. The word just means intense desire, overwhelming passion, overflowing emotion. The idea here is because she made all the nations to be drunk on the wine of the overflowing of emotion of her fornication. Jesus, he calls us, he says, if any man wants to be a mind disciple, what must, is the first thing he says to do? Let him deny himself, right? It's the exact opposite of unrestrained feeling, emotion, action, all of that stuff, right? That's the exact opposite of that. The system that the Antichrist sets up it will seduce all the nations of the world to be the extreme opposite of denying yourself. It will be the ideal of giving in to your desires, to be overwhelmed by your feelings and emotions, to be whoever you want to be. That is why fornication or sexual immorality is used to describe that mindset, this approach to life. Because indulging myself is the ultimate unfaithfulness to God. Fornication and adultery, those words are sometimes used in Scripture to describe when we're not following the Lord, our unfaithfulness to Him. 
If I'm going to be the exact opposite of denying myself, that's the ultimate betrayal, is it not? Because He's the one who created us to be led by Him and not by our body desires. <laughs> doesn't matter what my DNA is, doesn't matter what I want, doesn't matter how I feel. None of those things matter when it comes to making good choices in life. They don't. They're not relevant. You know, I wake up in the morning, I don't feel like going to work. Tough. There's bills to pay, go to work. You know, tough. I can think I'm a woman when I'm biologically a man, just the same that I can think it's a good idea to murder my neighbor for not mowing his lawn. Neither thought is to be acted upon, no matter how strong the desire may be. I'm to deny myself and to submit to God's ways. It doesn't matter how I was born or how I think I was born or what I really think I am or even what I think will make me the happiest. None of those things matter. Can you imagine how absurd life would be if every single human being acted this way? I mean, think about it. If every single human being decided to just act however they feel, well, I feel like this. Well, I, I, have, a, I have a desire for this. If we all just acted upon everything we ever desired or felt or thought or got confused by, what would life look like? Yeah, horrifying. Because no one would think about how their actions affected others. Only what they want. And here's the big problem. <laughs> what happens when my wants come into conflict with someone else's wants? We're there. We're there. You don't want what I want? Burn down a city. Well, the tribulation period will be that kind of world completely. Everyone's going to buy into this wonderful utopian pleasure cruise, but it's going to result in conflicts. Well, I don't want you to want what you want. So I'm going to stop you from taking what you want because it interferes with what I want. And those conflicts, the Bible tells us, will bring humanity to the brink of non-existence. Something that can only be avoided because Jesus steps in. This angel says, don't buy into the Antichrist nonsense. It's doomed to failure. Well, a third angel brings another announcement, warning that two awful things will happen to anyone who worships the Antichrist and takes his brand. Verse 9, and the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. <laughs> That's bad enough. On top of that, number two, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receives the mark of his name. The angel here brings two warnings of the consequences of taking the mark of the beast and worshiping the Antichrist. One is temporal judgment from God, judgment in this life. In verse 9, it says, or verse 10, it says, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. This refers to God's temporal judgment through the seven vials or the seven bowl judgments of Revelation 15 and 16. 
When you read those two chapters, they are the most horrifying experience a human being can have next to hell. And God says he will pour it out, or the angel says he will pour it out without mixture. It means at full strength, undiluted. I am often asked, why, if, if the mark of the beast decides who's going to, you know, you know who's going to, you know, they're lost forever. They can't repent after that. Why wait three years? Why, why bring this judgment on them for three years? Why not just throw them into hell and be done with it? Why doesn't God just end the tribulation after all these people take the mark of the beast if no one can be saved after that? To understand that answer, we have to truly understand just how evil sin is. And I don't know if that's possible this side of heaven. God is very angry at humanity for their sin. He is very angry that the horrors of sin is brought to the world. The Bible teaches there's not a day that goes by that God is not angry. In Psalm 711, it says he is angry at the wicked every day, every day. And so while I know there's a billboard out there that says God is not angry, I'm sorry, the Bible disagrees. Now, this anger, however, is not the fitful anger of a child who doesn't get his way. <laughs> Throw a toy at somebody, you know. It is a deep broken-hearted, righteous fury that knows that those that do these things must be stopped. And the Bible says that God's anger, his wrath is his slow work. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so he waits. He is long-suffering. So what happens when there is no more waiting to be done? You have an age of perfect righteous, holy anger that needs to be poured out. Though I don't have the capacity to describe God's anger at sin and, and what it does to you, I can say that every believer will agree it's deserved as God pours it out for three years upon those who take the mark of the beast. In Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, it says, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing there on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses. What's the song of Moses? I will sing unto the Lord, for he has done triumph gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. That's the song they're singing. You destroyed, you killed the Egyptian army who were chasing us and persecuting us, who enslaved us. They will sing the song of the Lamb, that he has redeemed us. That's our song. And what will we say? When God's about to bring his wrath upon the world, we will say, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, thou King of saints. So while I cannot accurately describe God's anger and how it is right for God to do this to you because I don't fully understand it yet, I can promise you this, when you're there, you will understand and you will agree. You will say it's the right thing to do, God. And sadly, 
It will get worse than this three years of wrath, temporal judgment for those who take the mark. Look at the middle of verse 10. And here's the second warning. Not only will you experience that, but if you take the mark and worship the beast, you will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or nor night. The word therefore tormented, it means to punish by torture, with should be translated in fire and brimstone. They will be punished by torture in fire and brimstone. If that's horrifying to you, that's because it is. The idea of hell being a party has no place in Scripture. It is painful. It is torturous. And here's the worst part. It is experience seeing the God who offered you a chance to escape it refuse to do so for all eternity. You will know that he knows you're there, that he sees you there, and he offers no respite at that point. I can have a horrible week where I failed the Lord, I've fallen short, and I know I can come to him, and when I sing that song that you are worthy, and I pour my heart out to him seeking mercy, and and I'm crying out for the Lord that, that he doesn't ignore me. I know that he receives my praise. I know that he's blessed by my praise. Is it, is it frail? Is it faulty? Is it weak? Yes, all those things. But I know he receives it. I'm not living in a place devoid of his love. I'm his child even though I fail. I, I, I'm, his, I'm his son. I've been raised to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And his love surrounds me. I can't imagine what it would be like to be in a place devoid of God's love. The Bible tells us even unbelievers in this life experience God's love. In Matthew 5, it tells us in verses 43 through 45 that his, 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 um, the rain, he sends his rain upon the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. God is gracious and good to all. There's a sense of his love, whether you're the worst heathen or, or you're, you're the best believer. But here, in the lake of fire, there'll be no respite. There will be no sun to shine. There will be no smiles to be had, ever, ever. And so if you've never repented of your sins and trusted Jesus as your Savior, there is still time now. Don't wait, because there's no second chance after you die. And whatever you can conceive of hell's awfulness, multiply it times a million. In verse 11, it says, and the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. Why do you have smoke? You have smoke because something's burning. The smoke ascends from the lost ones who are burning. And it ascends, it rises up continually. It's in the present tense there, forever and ever. That phrase there, forever and ever, it's the same phrase when it says, and so shall we be with the Lord, you know? It talks about the forever and ever of us experiencing his goodness, of being with him. It means into the always of the forever. Their judgment, their torment is eternal. And there is no rest day nor night. 
no relief from trouble. I cannot think of a more clear warning to those who are living on the earth at this time. I don't think God can be any more clear. He says, if you don't worship the Antichrist, he might starve you out. He might even kill you. But if you do worship him, you won't find relief from trouble for all eternity. Choose wisely. You see, Pastor, really trying to scare the hell out of me? Yes. Because <laughs> I don't want you to go. God doesn't want you to go. It takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's what the Bible says. What he takes pleasure in is when the wicked turns from his wicked ways and repents. So if you don't know Christ this morning, please, don't go there. Repent. Heaven's better. Much, much better. Now those who choose to follow the Lord, they don't have to worry about eternal judgment. And choosing to die rather than worship the Antichrist we see their enduring faith in God's word shines. Look at verse 12, and I'll try to wrap this up quickly. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith in Jesus. It shouldn't say of Jesus, in Jesus. By heeding these warnings, we see the endurance, the steadfastness of the saints. By heeding these warnings, we see those who keep the commandments of God and their faith, their confidence, their trust in Christ. And you know, this is what faith is. It looks at the difficulties of obeying God and it says, I trust God that he's worth it. I trust God that his promises are worth it. They are trusting God's promise that a blessed eternity waits even if they lose everything in this life. And I ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe that promise? You know, certainly much of our sin is the result of selfishly desiring things that God forbids. You know, we just want what we want. But some of our sins are rooted in the belief that if we don't get what we want now, nothing better awaits us. That it's not worth it to deny ourselves now. So what do you believe about eternity? Is heaven really worth following Jesus now? Well, John hears one more vo voice from heaven in verse 13 telling him, yes, yes it is. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, write, you've got to write this down. People need to hear this, John. I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, write, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Blessed means, oh, how happy. I think it goes against everything in our natural instinct to say starvation is blessed, dying is blessed, persecution is blessed. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yes, says the Spirit. I love how the Holy Spirit pipes up here. The word there, yes, means yes, it is true. Blessed are they that die in the Lord from henceforth. The Spirit says, yes, it is true. That they may rest from their labors. That they might experience physical refreshment, restoration from their hard work and toil. 
You know, the Holy Spirit speaks many times in the Scripture, but almost always through other people. Even in the book of Revelation, when John tells us to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, the Spirit's always saying it through Jesus. Paul repeatedly mentions the Holy Spirit telling him things, but those things are spoken in his heart. We don't usually see the Holy Spirit speak out loud with an audible voice. In fact, the only other time in the book of Revelation that the Holy Spirit speaks audibly is at the very end when it says, and the Spirit and the bride say, come. That the Holy Spirit would speak up at this time audibly and not through an intermediary like he normally does means this was important. Something he felt the need to address immediately. And what does God's Spirit want us to know? That heaven is real, guys. It's real. That following Jesus is worth it. And that true refreshment from all the hardness of life is waiting for us on the other side. And no matter what you may lose here in obeying Jesus or following Jesus, it's worth it. It's worth it for all eternity. Christians, we're not to crave death. That's not what I'm saying. These believers, of course, are living in unique times. But guys, we must believe that the Spirit's declaration here is true. If we are going to cling to God's word and keep walking with Jesus in obedience to him in our own trials, amen? So my question is, do you believe that? You know, it says their works do follow him here. They're gonna be rewarded on top of the blessings of joy and refreshment. Can you imagine that? That's why the Bible says we're going to receive these crowns, we're going to throw them down before his feet, because we're going, I don't, I don't deserve this. And he's still going to give them to us. And those rewards, that refreshment, that joy is better than anything that can be temporarily attained here. Let's all stand. Lord, we have so many things that vie for our hearts, our flesh, it craves things that are so opposed to you. And Lord, we know if we don't walk in the Spirit, we're going to lose that battle. So this morning, Lord, we recommit ourselves to the truths that you declare. It's worth it. You're trustworthy. Heaven is going to be awesome. Following you is always worth it no matter what we might lose out on here. So Lord, for every dear brother and sister this morning who is recommitting themselves to living for you, even in the challenges they face, even in the denial of self, saying, Lord, I, I'm gonna say no to me so I can follow you. Lord, will you fill them with your spirit and help them to live that commitment out? Lord, we can't do anything on our own, and so we pray for your power and your might to be living out the obedient decisions we're making this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.